0: 19 John chapter 19. Let us look at verse 16. Read along with me if you would. So then he handed him over to them to be crucified. They took Jesus, therefore, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two other men, one on either side and Jesus in between. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. Therefore, many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers, when they have crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part to every soldier and also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, But cast lots for it, to decide whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, they divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. From that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished, to fulfill the scripture said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. John Flavel said, it is uh, commonly said, death is dry. Christ found it so when he died. When his spirit labored in the agonies of death, then he said, I thirst. It's difficult for most of us, if not all of us, to understand the horrors of of a thirst or having a thirst that is not quenched, a physical thirst. And it's hard to comprehend the importance of water to those who live in desert areas of the world, especially in this time. And there was also the panic in Exodus chapter 17 when the people were thirsty and they grumbled against Moses. They needed water and so did their livestock. God intervened and provided And used Moses as an instrument. The psalmist and the prophets likened happiness, joy, grace to streams of water and full fountains. Thirst in biblical times was something we cannot fully understand, physically speaking. And in some ways, as we would read the word of God as they thirsted for the ever-living God, some of us do not know what that means. And we would read the Puritans and the Reformers and we saw how they lived and and how they wrote and how they prayed. And we say, look how they thirsted for the ever-living God. The Bible describes Jesus' thirst from Psalm 22, verse 14 and 15 as, I am poured out like water and all of my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax It is melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. I'll ask the Lord one more time for help as I preach the word of God this morning and for everyone to be paying attention. Father, I pray, O God, that you'd give me the Holy Spirit filled that I would preach your word, Lord, and that you would have your people engaged in this, Lord. For your glory and your name's sake, in Jesus' name, amen. First point, the humanity of Jesus Christ. The humanity of Jesus Christ. After this, verse 28, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished, Jesus, the God-man, knew that all of these things had been accomplished. To fulfill Scripture, he said, I am thirsty. Jesus, being God, knew that all things were now finished. He was aware that his suffering of God's wrath had come to completion. And that the time of his physical life was about to end. He knew that now it was time to die. When someone was crucified, they could have lived for several days on the cross. Agonizing. Suffering going through shock, bleeding out, all the details, for several days. Jesus endured on the cross long enough for all things to be accomplished. He was in control of when he would bow his head and give up his spirit, in verse 30. One part that was fulfilled is mentioned by John in verse 29, which is a fulfillment of Psalm 69, verse 21. They also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Jesus felt the full measure of the wrath of an angry God. The pure wrath of God with not one drop of comfort. As it says in Romans chapter 8, verse 32, he who did not spare his own son. John Flavel again says, as the wrath lay upon his soul, so all the wrath of God was poured out upon him, even to the last drop, so that there is not one drop reserved for the elect to feel. Christ's cup was deep and large, he says. It contained all the fury and wrath of an infinite God in it, and yet Jesus drank it up. To fulfill Scripture, Jesus said, I am thirsty. Of the seven sayings on the cross from the Savior, this cry was the shortest. In the Greek, it's actually one word. And as we, we would say it like this, I thirst. This word and this event was in fulfillment of Scripture. And as I read Psalm 22, verse 15, this describes extreme thirst. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaw. Out of all the agonies, one suffered in crucifixion. Dehydration was possibly one of the severest. In the sun, in the desert, suffering, and then not having anything to drink, to comfort even one bit. There would be no comfort to being extremely dehydrated after suffering severe scourging, blood loss, wounds, and shock. Jesus shows us that He is God and that He is man. He has proven to be deity throughout the Gospel of John. If you read through the Gospel of John and you are unconvinced That he is God, you are lost and you are without Christ. There is no question. He also has proven his humanity. Born as a baby, Luke chapter 2, verse 7. As a child, he increased in wisdom and stature, Luke chapter 2, verse 52. As a man, he was weary in body, John chapter 4, verse 6. He was hungered in Matthew 4. He slept. He rejoiced. He wept. And we see here that Jesus cried out, I thirst. Evidence of his humanity. God does not thirst physically, but the God-man does. Angels do not thirst And in eternity, Christians will not thirst either. Revelation chapter 7, verse 16 and 17. They will hunger no longer, nor thirst any more, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd and will guide them to springs of the water of life. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes the question to bring back to your mind as we continue to go through this is, what do you thirst for? Fill in the blank. I thirst for this, that, and the other. Many false belief systems have come to erroneous conclusions about the deity of Christ or the humanity of Christ. Spurgeon says, Jesus has proved to be really man because he suffered the pains which belong to manhood. Jesus really suffered not only the more refined pains of delicate and sensitive minds, but the rougher and commoner pangs of flesh and blood. So Christ, Christ proves his humanity here once again in his thirst, We also find that suffering is not meaningless. Indeed, Christ revealed the promise of the suffering servant, which we find in Isaiah 53. In order for Jesus to pay the debts of man's sin, he must not only be God, but he must be man as well. He had to be made like his brethren in all things as it says in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. As James Boyce says, Right here, our Lord's pain is instructive. For although his suffering was closely linked to sin, he was suffering for sin. And it was sinful man who had caused him to suffer. His suffering was nevertheless not for his own sin, for he had none. There was no suffering before the fall of man. There is no suffering in heaven, yet there is a whole lot of suffering in between, as they're not. We all suffer as Christians, do we not? We all sin as believers as well. Sometimes we're suffering because a of result of our own individual sin. Sometimes we're suffering and it has nothing to do with our individual sin. Sometimes it's not a direct result of us doing anything necessarily. But we all suffer and Jesus suffered for us. The humanity of Christ. Secondly, the sovereign details in the death of Christ the sovereign details in the death of Christ. Verse 29, a jar full of sour wine was standing there. And John, being as observant as he was, pointed that out for us. It wasn't just there by accident. It was placed there. It was common to have something there when the crucifixions were taking place. So they put a sponge full of sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. Now this sour wine is like a vinegar, not the vinegar drugged with myrrh, not a a pain, a help for the pain. This was sour wine, cheap wine, well diluted with water. This was there for a purpose, provided at crucifixions. Yet they tried to give him Wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Matthew 27, verse 34. He was unwilling to drink of that. But to fulfill scripture, as they put the sour wine on a branch of hyssop and brought it to his mouth, he tasted This hyssop was a bush that produced a sponge-like blossom. We've seen this before, Psalm 51, verse 6, a psalm of David. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Priests use this as a brush with which to sprinkle the blood from the sacrifices in the temple. This was also used during the first Passover. Passover where the lamb's blood was on, placed on the doorpost, as Exodus 12 says. You shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood which is in the basin and apply some of the blood that is in the basin to the lintel and to the two doorposts. And none of you shall go outside the door because, uh, excuse me, of his house until morning. So indeed, Jesus received this sour wine, verse 30, and he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit in full control at all times. Yet those who crucified him were 100% responsible for what they did. Pilate responsible for handing him over to the Jews. The Jews responsible for what they did. The Romans that were there responsible for crucifying him. It is finished as something we will look at in more detail in sundays to come lord willing it's the same word is used in verse 28 uh, it is accomplished jesus knew it was it was done he knew why he came and he knew at this point it was accomplished there was nothing more that needed to be done Mark chapter 10, verse 45 For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So when Jesus says it is finished, it is already done. Every other false religion out there says you must do, 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 do this and do this and do this to inherit eternal life. And Jesus says it is already done, it is accomplished. It is by grace we are saved not as ourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. Luke tells us also, Jesus, crying with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said that, he breathed his last. So much sovereign details in the death of our Lord that was spoken of in the Old Testament. Every little detail is important. That he would be betrayed by a familiar friend. Psalm 41 verse 9. The forsaking of disciples through being offended at him. Psalm 31 verse 11. The false accusations. Psalm 35 verse 11. The silence before his judges. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7. The being proven guiltless, Isaiah 53, verse 9. The numbering of him with the transgressors, Isaiah chapter 53, verse 12. The being crucified, Psalm 22, verse 16. The mockery of the spectators, Psalm 109, verse 25. The taunts of non deliverance, Psalm 22, verse 7 and 8. The gambling for his garments, Psalm 22, verse 18. The prayer for his enemies. Isaiah 53, verse 12. The being forsaken of God. Psalm 22. The thirsting. Psalm 69, verse 21. The yielding of his spirit into the hands of the Father. Psalm 11, verse 5. The bones not broken. Psalm 34, and verse 20. Burial in a rich man's tomb. Isaiah 53, verse 9. All foretold centuries before they came to pass. It is right there in Scripture for people to look at and say, oh, I can see this. And we would present that to them and they still will not believe because they are unwilling to believe. Recall how it was pointed out in our last study that the Old Testament was on the mind of the lord even in his agony and psalm 22 it seems and now at last as psalm 69 verse 21 was fulfilled he cries out i thirst and it was all complete as it says in verse 30 it is finished and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit all these details in the old testament that we find fulfilled in the new testament thirdly thirsting for the things of christ thirsting for the things of jesus christ john uses irony in his gospel writings as we have seen here again we we have a fact the fountain of living water says, I'm thirsty, or I thirst. Christ indeed drank what we deserve to drink. The cup that we deserve to consume, he drank for us. He thirsted so that we would never thirst spiritually without providing a remedy. His physical thirst becomes symbolic of our spiritual thirst. His death alleviated that thirst. We as Christians do not thirst for eternal life any longer, nor do we thirst for the wellsprings of this world anymore. Yet there are things uh, that as Christians we do thirst for. And the scripture tells us what those are. Go to Psalm chapter or Psalm 63, first. Psalm 63. And then we're going to go to Psalm 42. So if you say I'm a Christian, I thirst no more. You're wrong. Thirsting for more of Christ. Thirsting for more of Christ. Because we as Christians have the indwelling Holy Spirit. We ought to have a longing for more of the things of Christ. More of you, Jesus, less of me. That ought ought to be our, our, our cry. We find this expressed in the Psalms. Psalm 63, this is a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. This thirsting soul that is satisfied in God. O God, he says, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Recognize David says, Oh God, you are my God. He knows God. And he says, I shall seek you earnestly. He doesn't say, Now that you're my God and now I'm a Christian, I'm just not going to seek after the Lord anymore. There's no reason to. No, earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you. David was in an actual desert here. Driven from Jerusalem where he regularly worshipped God. Remember not that long ago that we were told in some ways that you, will, you can't worship God as prescribed in the Scripture. You remember that a couple few years ago, right? No one has amnesia here. I, th- I think we recall this. And some cowered at that and feared man rather than feared God. Let us never make a mistake of saying that man will tell us how we are to worship God. No, God says how we are to worship him. Imagine the thirst we as Christians would have had to be together corporately if we were prevented from doing so? Would we thirst like David, who was pushed out of Jerusalem, could not be in the temple? If we were pushed out of here, would we say, where is plan B? Where is the alternate meeting place? Or would we say, oh, we're just going to stay home and stay safe and maybe worship from home? We've seen some of this before, so we cannot say, oh, that's an outlandish claim. Let us not forget. David is out in a desert thirsting for God that he knows, a God that he worships. He is thirsting for God as one would and should. As one would thirst for water in a desert. If anyone has ever been here in a desert and had no water, you understand somewhat of what David's going through. Therefore, he wants to stay close to the Lord. Look at verse 3. Well, we read verse 1. Let's not skip verse 2. Thus I have seen you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. Because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips will praise you. This is a man who is satisfied in God. And verse 4 of Psalm 63. So I will bless you as long as I live. I will lift up my hands in your holy name. He is satisfied in God. The God that he thirsts for, he is a worshiper of God. And in verse 5, he verbally praises God. My soul is satisfied, as with the marrow and fatness, and my mouth offers praises with joyful lips. And David was not in comfort at this time. He wasn't worshiping as we could be sitting right now, and I don't think we need the heat anymore, but here we are. David's situation was quite different. Look at verse 6. When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches for you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I sing for joy. And verse eight, my soul clings to you, clings to God and your right hand upholds me. Now, let's let us be careful when we say, oh, I'm clinging to the Savior. And someone says, no, you're not. He's holding on to you. True. But David the here says, my soul clings to you. As a result, David wants to stay close to the Lord. This God that he thirsts for is a God he wants to stay close to. He's satisfied in God. He's a worshiper of God. He verbally praises God and he wants to cling to this God. Questions for us are, is that us? Is that you individually? Are you staying close to the Lord and clinging to him? As I was studying this out, uh, I was reading a little bit of James' voice again. and He says uh, that there are, um, in a Christian setting or a uh, yeah, Christian gathering, there are three types of people. He must not be thinking of outright unbelievers who would deny the things of Christ because that would be four types of people. He says three types. There's three types in here this morning those who are Christian in name only. They seem to be following after the Lord, but they are Christians in name only, like the five foolish virgins who did not know the Lord and therefore rejected by Christ. Secondly, those following Jesus but at a distance. Remember when we studied Peter after Jesus was arrested and Peter followed him and he, stu- he He followed Jesus at a very far distance. When times got tough, he denied Christ three times. And then there's the Christians who thirst for him, who are wanting more of him, who want to bask in his light, who know that he alone can satisfy their thirsty soul. Thirsting for more of Christ. Go to Psalm 43. Psalm 42, rather. This is a psalm by the sons of Korah who were Levites. Psalm 42 and 43 should be taken together. And one reason both deal with spiritual depression And we see what the psalmist is thirsting for here. We looked at this. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. We see also in verse 11, the questions asked. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why? Why? Have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. And then we see the end of, look at the end of 43, verse 5. Again, the same question. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why are you disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. So you can see the psalmist, if you go through these Two Psalms, you can see one who thirsts after God, who is going through it, who is hurting, who is in despair, in spiritual depression, and at the end, he knows or she knows where to turn. To praise God that he is never going to leave you. He is the help of your countenance. There's several reasons here why all of this could be taking place. First, forced absence from the, uh, the temple where, the, where God was worshipped, just like David. A forced absence from the corporate gathering of the people of God. Would this cause one, it ought to cause one, to be like the deer panting for water brooks, thirsting after God. Secondly, look at verse 3. My tears have been my food all day and night, while they say to me all day long, where is your God? That is a saying of mockery. That is a saying of when a Christian is going through something, people will say that are non-believers that hate Jesus Christ, where is your God during this? Or if you're witnessing to someone, they'll say, well, where is God during this situation? Where is God during this situation? Well, he's where he always is. All-knowing and all-powerful. Look at verse 4. These things I remember, and I pour out my soul within me, for I used to go. Memories can be good or can be bad, right? Sometimes we have memories that we remember too much and that we dwell on. Some of us are good about that. We say, oh, that's in the past. I'm not going to deal with it anymore. I haven't met anyone like that, but. Memories and I remember this and I remember that. Some of you may struggle with memory as well. But we see this asking of himself. Verse five, why are you in despair? Why have you become disturbed? My soul is within is." in despair within me. Look at verse 7. Trials of life, another reason for spiritual depression. Deep calls out to deep at the sounds of your waterfalls. All of your breakers and your waves have rolled over me. This reminds me of days living on, uh, on the beach. Well, I didn't live on the beach, but I lived close enough to the beach where I could go to the beach very often. And you go there sometimes, and you go there where the waves were big, and you get tossed to and fro, and where there was an undertow. And sometimes it felt like you could never get out of there. Look at verse 9. I will say to God, my rock. Notice the psalmist knows who God is to him. To God, he is my rock. But he will say, he will be honest before God. Why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? This reminds me of when we get, um, when we ask God, and we should go before God very honestly and approach the throne of grace and ask God, why is this taking place? The psalmist says here, Why have you forgotten me? When God's timing is not our timing, we can feel that God at times is not listening or that we feel abandoned by God. When God's timing, as we know, is always best. When the door is shut and we try to get the battering ram to, to open it, and it almost opens, but it never does. And we try to kick it, and it won't open. Because God knows what's best for us. And then eventually, in his timing, perhaps it does open. Perhaps we try to push it open and he slams it right in our face. We've seen that as well. But this psalmist thirsted for, for more of God, more of Christ being the point, no matter what. Thirsting for more of his word. Now, if you can go one, two, three days without reading, word of God or prayer, you're lost or you're severely backslidden. One thing's for sure, you are not thirsting for God. We are also to thirst for heaven, not the utopia of this earth that is so pushed on us. Everywhere we look, the earth this and the earth that. And we are to be good stewards as Christians, yes. But we're not looking for no utopia on this earth. We're looking for Christ and we're looking for heaven. Thirsting for his word. Thirsting for heaven. Thirsting for more of him. Or are you, Christian, drinking from the fountains of this world? Or stopping for a drink? A sip? Or maybe even a chug of the things of this world. Christians, spit it out. Spit it out. Repent of your lukewarmness. Drink from the precious fountain of life. Thirsting. As Jesus thirsted physically on the cross, no doubt he was yearning to have that with his father again that unity with the Father again, that oneness as it were with the Father again, because he was separated from God the Father because of sin placed upon him. He thirsted to be back with the Father as we thirst for the things of the Lord. Secondly, thirsting for souls to be satisfied. Thirsting for souls to be satisfied. Spurgeon again. Christ is always thirsting after the salvation of precious souls. And that cry on the cross was the outburst of the great heart of Jesus Christ. As he saw the multitude and he cried out to his God, I thirst. He thirsted to redeem mankind. He thirsted to accomplish the work of our salvation. This very day, he thirsts still in that respect, as he is still willing to receive those that come to him. Still resolved that such... As come, shall never be cast out. And he still desires that they may come. We certainly see this in Jesus' ministry. As we're getting close to ending the Gospel of John, a couple of few years from now, but we see in Jesus' own words in his ministry Remember when he interacted with the woman of Samaria at the well? He said, everyone who drinks of this water, this earthly water that was there, will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. You see, people without Jesus Christ are thirsting. But they're not thirsting for Christ. They're not thirsting for the things of the Lord. No man seeks after God. They are seeking to quench their thirst with the wrong drink, ponds of perversity, lakes of licentiousness, the wells of worldliness, the streams of spiritual bankruptcy. And the fountains of forbidden drinks. What of those who do not have their thirst quenched by the living water, Jesus Christ? Well, Luke tells us something about that. Please turn there with me. Luke chapter 16. Now, there have been a lot of various teachings on this, verse 19 through 31, but if you can just keep in your mind that what is, what is being represented here is the contrast between heaven and hell and individuals that are in there that are either in heaven or hell. This describes a prayer too late as well. Now, there was a rich man, verse 19, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in the splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with swords, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now, the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, which is another word for hell, In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. Notice that he is in, the rich man is in agony Thirsting, nothing is there to help him or to quench his thirst. This was, we see here, um, a repentance, a false repentance, not according to the Spirit. He cried to Abraham and not to God. He didn't cry to Jesus Christ. He did not cry to the Father. Father Abraham. He was of the seed of Abraham according to the flesh, but not according to the Spirit. He was not truly repentant. He wants relief for his suffering. Send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus, bad things. But now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. There's memory in hell. People will remember in hell. And besides this, verse 26, Between us, And you, there is a great chasm fixed so that no one, so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. It'll be too late. It will be too late. And he said, then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers in order order that he may warn them so that they will not come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, no, Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. And if you're here this morning and you're lost, you do not heed the word of God, nothing will persuade you. No miracles, no people rising from the dead. If you do not believe his word preached, if this is boring to you, you are lost. A fully awakened conscience in hell. Jesus says of hell, their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. Internal suffering and awareness of this. Weeping and gnashing of teeth, Jesus said. Wailing and sorrows. It's amazing as Jesus described hell so specifically, we could take away so much from it that men in quote unquote Christianity, which are not Christians, do away with hell and say it is not real, or that um, they will not feel anymore, and when it's so descriptive in Scripture for us, the presence of God is in hell as sinners suffer under His just wrath. A fire that will never be quenched. You think that you would ever be thirsty now, you have no idea of what it will be like when you enter into hell. Rejecting Jesus Christ. At the feast in chapter 7, though, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come and drink. Jesus is the fountain of life. Every other fountain is laced with the poison of sin and false teaching. Revelation 22, verse 16 and 17 I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. He says, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who wishes to take the water of life without cost. The one who thirsted on the cross calls to all who will come to him and drink from the fountain of life then tells us as Christians to share that invitation to all who are thirsty. For there will be a time when he will no longer call out to those that are lost and without Christ. There will be no more offer. Drink of eternal life while you can. The humanity of Jesus Christ and the deity of Jesus Christ, obvious from the mouth. Of Jesus Christ. In the gospel of John. All the sovereign details. Of the death of Jesus Christ. Question for us as believers. Are you thirsting for the things of Jesus Christ? More of Christ. More of his word. And for lost souls to be satisfied. To drink of the well. That we have been able to partake of. Jesus the fountainhead of eternal life. Have you been to the fountain of living water? If you have not, it's not too late. Today is the day of salvation to all who would believe, to all who would place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Lord, who would turn from their sin and turn to him. Let us pray and prepare our hearts for the communion devotion this morning. Father, we come to you once again, and we pray that we would come thirsting for more of you, God. That we would not drink of the fountains of this world that seek to sway us to drink from 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 those fountains. They're everywhere. but you have allowed us to drink from the fountain of everlasting life and we can continue to come back to you to drink more and more and more. And God, that you would convict our hearts and persuade us from your word and show us that we have that message to those who are dying of thirst out there in New England. And elsewhere. Let our hearts be encouraged. Let us be convicted. God, let us be concerned. And let us be prepared to take of your table this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.